Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Let's pray and we'll get started. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we pray that you would bless your word and that as we take some time to uh, continue our journey through the book of Romans, that you would pour your spirit out on us, that you would strengthen our faith, and that you would help us to uh, just trust you all the more deeply. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, as I, I tend to like to do, um, was there anything from last week that was valuable, helpful? Anything that you remember that you don't want to forget? That would be two weeks ago. Yeah. No, I'm really asking for something. And we weren't here, so. Yeah, I got nothing. Three weeks ago. All right. Then we're going to continue on. With my mouth full of cookies, sorry. Um, in Romans 10. Starting with verse 18. <clears throat> All right, Romans 10, 18 asks the question, did they not hear? Um, uh, from, from the, uh, I'll read this last bit that hopefully we'll get through all of this today. But I ask, did they not hear? Yes, they did. Their voice has gone out to the whole world and their words to the ends of the world. But I asked, did Israel not understand? First, Moses said, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. I will make you angry by a nation that lacks understanding. And Isaiah says boldly, I was found by those who were not looking for me. I revealed myself to those who were not asking for me. But the, to Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and defiant people. So, um, did Israel not hear? And the answer is, yes. uh, they heard. Yeah, they heard. Um, the quotation there is actually from Psalm 19, verse 4. And... Um, I think that this is a, um, worth a little excursus. And if you've got your Bible, I'd encourage you to open to Psalm 19 and, uh, and take a look at that. If your Bible's on your phone, that's, that's fine too. Um, but, but check this out, because I think it's interesting to see where uh, the psalmist, uh, likely King David, um, points us to understand uh, that God's voice is speaking among us. So this is a kind of a, a mid-length type of a, of a verse, it's, it's, or of a, a psalm. Some of them are quite long. Uh, psalm 18 is 50 verses long. This one's only 14 verses long. So wh where, where's the speech? In, uh, in Psalm 19. I think that's in like verse 2. Day after day they pour forth speech, night after night they reveal knowledge. Yeah, who are they? The heavens? Yeah. Yeah. You know, King David is basically saying, 
Really, all you should have to do is look out at the world and know that, you know, there is a God. And over and over again, they are proclaiming, you know, that, that he is there. Now, you take this a step further with David because, uh, you know, David is a believer. And so when he sees creation, he sees more than, you know, we would if we didn't believe in God. You know, if, if you don't have God in your life, you can look at creation and you can see the order, you can see the beauty, you can see the intricacy of it all. And I, I do think that the message of the Bible is that really anybody should be able to look at the world and believe that there is a God, that they, we were created. Uh, Psalm 139, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. You know, if you look at a cell under a microscope and really understand the intricacies of, of what's going on there and DNA and all of those things, these are not accidents. You know, um, the movement of the stars, you know, it's, it's fantastic, it's beautiful, it's wonderful. Um, and, uh, you know, for us as people who believe that we have been created by a loving God, we look at those things and, and we are just in awe of what he has done. But one of the things that happens to us sometimes is we become so focused on the things of this earth that we lose track of the, the greatness of, of God's love and forgiveness. We, we just kind of get wrapped up in our day to day. And I think the same could be said of Israel, that they get going in their lives and they lose track of where's God in our lives. You know, we're, we're just doing our thing. We get up each morning, we plant the crops, we you know, do all of these things. You know, I, I, and how much of, of your work life is dependent on you? You know, somebody's gotta do the job, right? <coughs> you know, you, you, you've experienced this maybe. Um, maybe you experience this around the house with, with household chores. Um, you know, you expect somebody else is going to do it because it's their job. And you're like, your job needs to be done for me to do my job. And I keep waiting, so you know what I'm gonna do? Just do it, right, exactly. And, and, um, and, and I think that there's an element of that in this life, in our experience of this life in a fallen world, that there's this self-reliance. And we just kinda, we're, we're just ourselves and we go through the world and we lose track of where's God in, in the midst of all of it. I really think that uh, you know, looking at the stars is one of those things that kind of puts us in a, a place where we're small. I, I think that those experiences are important. And not to sound too conspiratorial, but you know, the whole light pollution thing and we can't stand the dark and there always has to be light all the time and you can't see the stars. You know, where I grew up in Northern Michigan when I was a kid, I could see the Milky Way from my front yard. I haven't seen the Milky Way since I was a kid. You know, I know that there are places that you can go. You know, Bryce Canyon is a dark park and Isle Royal and there are other places like that. I haven't seen the Northern Lights since I was a little kid. We used to be able to stand on our front porch and see them sometimes, just kind of rolling off in the distance, you know. Nothing like what you would see if you were in Alaska or, or you know, in Finland or something like that. But you know, just this amazingness of, of the creation, things that are just completely outside of our control. So I, I really think that you know, 
when we think of our lives and we think of where is God speaking to us, what has he done for us, I, I, I do think that our experience of nature is intended to put us in a place where we're in awe of our creator who, who looks at us and says, I want you to exist. Um, and then, you know, with that, the people of Israel have the account of God's salvation. And so as they think of this God who created all things, that's the God who loves us and saves us. You know, and, and to have that, you know, be part of their heritage. Did they not hear? Yeah, they heard. They heard. It's just that their, their focus was someplace else. And, it, and this isn't judgment on Israel in the sense of, well, look at them. They're so stupid and we're so smart. I, I think that there's a warning to us here that we can get lost in our own lives and the things of this world and lose track of, you know, the God who created all things from the tiniest to the greatest and chose to create you uh, in the midst of all of it. So, you know, the, the stars and the, the heavens and the hand are his handiwork and they, uh, they, 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 they bow to his will. Uh, another passage to take a look at, Exodus 19, verse 8. So this is at Mount Sinai. And uh, God has spoken to the whole nation. And... Uh, then the people responded together, we will do all that the Lord has spoken. So Moses brought the people's words back to the Lord. Did the people not hear? They heard. They heard. In fact, in, in this case, um, what they heard was so fearful that they said, maybe you talk to Moses and not to us. Because we're so terrified of your voice. And, you know, God then, you know, works through these intermediaries, these prophets like Moses. Um, and, uh, you know, so this idea that uh, Israel did not hear, that they did not hear God's promises, they did not know about his salvation. In Romans, we're particularly talking about how he saves his people by grace. They heard that. Um, I was just thinking about the passage that, I think it's in Deuteronomy, um, where God says, you know, I didn't pick you because you were a great and powerful nation. You were the least of nations. You weren't even a nation. And yet I loved you and poured out my grace on you. In that sense of, you know, they heard that message and when it says, did they not hear, what were they to hear? They were to hear that God has dealt with them out of his love, that he's dealt with them out of his mercy and out of his forgiveness. That's how he chooses to act on Israel's behalf. And they took that as we are special people. Do Christians ever do that? Absolutely. You know, we think you know, we're better than others and... No, you know, we're people who have been saved by grace. And hopefully that has done some good things in our lives. But at, at the same time, it doesn't make us better people um, in, the, in the quality of the person. 
if that makes sense. It might, might mean you do better things than other people. It, it got kind of two different things going on there. So uh, as we look at um, Romans 10, verse 8, uh, who is to be saved? Romans 10, 18, I'm sorry, as we're back to our context. Everyone who hears, yeah. That's God's design. That's what's desire. That everyone would hear and then everyone would believe and then everyone would be saved. So um, he presses into this and, and, you know, so did they not hear? Well, yeah, they heard. Um, Did they not understand? That's the next question, verse 19. And he answers this with two more Bible passages. Um, You know, that's one of the... One of the things that's unique about this part of Romans is he is just pounding the scriptures. He's quoting the scriptures over and over and over again. Um, This first passage that he quotes, um, first of all, did they not understand? Did they not understand what? Did they not understand who was to be saved and how they were to be saved? Did they not understand that the salvation was for all people did they not understand that the salvation would be by God's grace and not by their doing? Um, and in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 1, or verse 21, excuse me, um, we have this answer that, that says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. I will make you angry by a nation that lacks judgment. Now he's quoting this passage. It, it's worth taking a look back at it and seeing it in its original context. Because um, you know how we have different translations of the Bible, right? So I'm using the, uh, the Christian Standard Bible. Um, the one that uh, uh, Peggy has on her lap is the New International Version. But it's not the New Inter- International Version. It's the New International Version from 1984, which is different from the one that came out in 2011. And uh, um, what do you have on your phone? New International, but I bet you it's the 2011 because you're probably using a, a streaming service type of a thing. Yep. Um, anybody have anything other than Christian Standard or um, you have King James? It's a solid translation. It's, it's missing some of the scholarship, but uh, it's still really good. And uh, if you've been listening to my midweek messages, if you're in the Psalms, that's the place to be. It's much more beautiful than any other translation that, uh, that's out there. Um, so in Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 21 uh, we read they have provoked my jealousy with what is not a god they have enraged me with their worthless idols so I will provoke their jealousy with what is not a people I will enrage them with a foolish nation a little bit of context there why is God doing this? Because they worshiped other gods. And that's part of this relationship that he's saying, you know, I will be your God, you will be my people. They start worshiping other gods. Now, his plan initially seems to have been that he is going to use them to draw all people to himself that the nation of Israel is to be a light to the Gentiles. 
which Gentiles, you know, that's, that's kind of a, a particularly a Jewish word. Um, it, it literally translates the nations. So it, it's one of those words that if you're not Jewish, you're Gentile. It's like uh, during the Roman period, if you weren't Roman, you were a barbarian. It, it was just this dichotomy, okay? And, uh, and so, you know, what he's saying by quoting this, you know, did Israel not understand? He's saying that there's this idolatry that's at work in them, that it, it, it's an idolatry that is a temptation to us as well, that we're going to justify ourselves, that we're going to somehow save ourselves. We become our own gods. And what did God do to the people of Israel when they started worshiping other gods? I'm going to take this special stuff away, and I'm going to make you jealous by giving it to other people. You know, and, and so he's, he's saying, you know, they heard. They heard, they understood, and yet they went after these other gods. You know, it, it always amazes me that within one generation of Israel experiencing the plagues, the crossing of the Red Sea, you know, the, the manna, the quail in the wilderness, the voice on the, the mountain, all of these things... They're already worshiping um, a, a false god when they get to the borders of Canaan. That they start worshiping Baal, even before they are in the promised land. It's like, how could, how could you not know? And yet, do any of us continue to do sins that we know are wrong? Yeah. It's, it's a cautionary tale. And, uh, you know, and it is the, the story of, of why God, you know, br brings salvation um, through Israel even to us. And then, did I get everything on that one? Uh, so this is part, the Song of Moses that, that we read from there, part of its history, if you go through the whole thing, uh, it's retelling that story of God's salvation, everything that he did to redeem them out of uh, Israel, but it's also part prophecy. You know, this idea that, you know, yes, God has chosen the people of Israel, and yet through their fall, he is going to bring people to salvation. And he's going to continue to talk about this uh, as we go through it. And then this other passage that he quotes, uh, it's from Isaiah chapter 65, verse 1. Um, and uh, this is another important part of, uh, of the, what we would call the Old Testament, the B.C. scriptures. You know. <coughs> um, so let's take a look at this. I didn't put these in because some of these are rather long. It's trying to save a tree. So start with the verse itself, Isaiah 65, uh, verse 1. That's the one that's being quoted there. And what do we see there? I was sought by those who did not ask. I was found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation who did not call on my name. It's very similar to, uh, to, to what's quoted there in, uh, in Romans. I didn't finish that thought about translations. I'm sorry. Um, I need to backtrack just a little bit. These aren't exactly the same as what you see here. Part of the reason for that is even though the, the 
Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew, by the time Paul's around, it's been translated. Paul reads Hebrew, but he probably reads Greek better than he reads Hebrew. And at some point, the Old Testament was translated into Greek. Um, that's, they, we call that the Septuagint. Um, supposedly, 70 elders went into uh, their rooms and they translated the Old Testament. And hey, presto, they came out exactly the same. Um, I'm skeptical, in case you couldn't tell. Um, but, uh, um, but this is a very important document for us because it was made by Jewish people. This isn't people from the outside translating you know, from the faith. These are people on the inside who have very important commitments to what does the text say, trying to bring it into another language, Greek in this case. Uh, so um, that became an important text for a lot of the Christians who couldn't read Hebrew. They would read the scriptures in Greek and they could read the Septuagint. Um, and one of the things that we find when we read the, uh, the Septuagint is that uh, um, there were some other traditions that formed uh, around God's word. And sometimes the Septuagint doesn't match as neatly as we would expect to the Hebrew Old Testament. And it's like, huh, what does this mean? And uh, you know, the, the answer is, I don't know, um, but we're going to trust God to give us the message that he needs us to, to hear, to know his love and salvation. Um, so take a look at uh, 65 verse 1. It matches very nicely with what, what was said there. Just you know, kind of some minor differences. Look at the context. Um, context matters for us to understand these passages. If you go back to chapter 63, verse 15, English translations sometimes do this thing that can be helpful. Sometimes it's not. We've talked about this, where they'll put a header in there to kind of help you to understand what's going on. In this case, this header is helpful. There is a division between 14 and 15. Verse 15 starts something new, and it's Israel's prayer. And Israel is praying here, and this prayer goes through verse 15 all the way through um, chapter 64. So, so take a moment, look at this. You know, this is Israel saying to God, look down from heaven and see. Um, your yearning and your compassion are withheld from me. They're experiencing this separation from God. They're, they're experiencing consequence of their idolatry and their sin. Yet you are our father. And they, they start talking about um, that relationship. Um, your father, our redeemer from ancient times, return because of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. They're, they're calling out for God's salvation. If only you would tear the heavens open and come down. So these are the longings of, of believers who are, are wanting God to come back and to, to save them and to redeem them. Chapter 65 is God's response. And his response begins with, I was sought by those who did not ask. I was found by those who did not seek me. 
I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation who did not call on my name. I spread out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in the path that is not good, following their own thoughts. These people continually anger me to my face, sacrificing in gardens, burning incense on bricks, sitting among the graves, spending nights in secret places, eating meat of pigs, and putting polluted broth in their bowls. In other words, now he's talking about Israel. You know, the, the idolatrous things that they were doing. You know, you know, sacrificing in gardens, burning incense. You know, these were all worship things. Um, sitting among the graves. Some gods you, you would worship in, in uh, graveyards. Um, uh, eating the meat of pigs, obviously something that makes you unclean, connects them to the, pagan, to the pagans of their time. Um, and he starts this whole thing out with, there are a bunch of people who are not seeking me, and they're going to find me. And there are a whole bunch of people out there that didn't ask for me. And they're going to be the ones that are seeking me. Because even though you were, you know, I found you, I saved you, you knew me, you decided to go a whole different way. Wow, that is so cool. I mean, yeah, there's nothing new under the sun. That's true. Yeah, uh, even like in this century, uh, countries and, really, and regions like Saudi Arabia, then Iran, Iraq, if we look back to this zone of the world, India and all their neighboring countries is doing the same thing. Mm -hmm. Where like Psalm 65 says that I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I would submit that this is happening in the United States. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, it's really happening everywhere. But, you know, you know, I always like to take a look at what's going on right here rather than, you know, what, what, are, the, what are my neighbors doing wrong? <laughs> what's going on with us? Um, and uh, all, A lot of them are like literally, uh, I mean, spending their time in like fantasy world. Yeah. Like total fantasy. Yeah. Especially when you look at all the blessings that the United States has achieved since it came into being. I mean, huge blessings. Incredible blessings, yeah. and for which we should be very grateful. Yes. Um, and, and yet, um, Luther sometimes talked about uh, God's blessings being like a rain shower that comes <laughs> and then it passes. Except for apparently in April in <laughs> northeastern Ohio. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, and uh, you know, and as I think about that, our nation has been greatly blessed. Uh, materially, uh, I think that we have had a great spiritual heritage, that there have been wonderful um, opportunities for the gospel to spread and to spread the gospel around the world. Um, but uh, the rain showers pass. There was a time when Rome was the greatest nation on earth. You know, and I, I, no small part of that dealt with you know, the rise of Christianity. You know, within, you know, especially the later part of, of that empire. And, uh, you know, as we walk in ways that are not God's ways, you know, this image of the rain shower passing away, it's, it's not difficult to kind of wrap our minds around that, you know. But if it's a rain shower that's passing, it's going somewhere. It's not just evaporating and disappearing. So where do we see uh, God 
working in some really incredible ways right now. Africa is amazing. You know, it's incredible what's happening in the church in Africa, um, despite persecution in some parts of Africa. Um, uh, there are some really incredible things that are happening in the Middle East that are not getting a lot of publication. There are some really incredible things that are happening in Germany right now. Not among Germans, though. It's among the immigrants, you know, that are coming from Syria and Iran who are hearing the gospel for the first time and are free to do something with it. You know, there are places that God is blessing. So if the rain shower goes away from us, don't think that it's gone. And don't think that we won't benefit from that rain falling someplace else. Because it fell among us for a long time, and what did we do? We sent people to the ends of the earth to share the gospel all over the place. And what will they do? The same thing. Yeah? Speaking of a rain shower, I guess there's a car in the parking lot Do any of you have a blue-gray sedan? All right, well, that's a bummer. <laughs> the other thing I wanted to mention is um, I just watched this, this movie that came out, Jesus Revolution. Yeah, um, Lonnie Frisbee and... Um, Kelsey Grammer. Yeah, 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 yeah. Was it Chuck Smith? It, I think Kelsey Grammer plays Chuck Smith. And then Lonnie Frisbee's like this hippie guy who comes to faith in Jesus and all of a sudden he starts bringing all these hippies to church. Right. Yeah. I, 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 it just kind of came to mind while we were reading this kind of like uh, these people that, that weren't looking for God found him and then these people that thought they were kind of steadfast in God but weren't finding him. Yeah, yeah. If you're interested in that story, I, I, I have a, a resource on it. Not, so I, I'm, I listen to podcasts all the time. Christian History Almanac, um, uh, one of the weekend editions, he does a half an hour show. He did one on uh, this whole movement. Okay. Yeah, and fascinating, fascinating. Because Chuck Smith is like, you know, he's very straight-laced and, you know, he is what you would consider a very traditional, you know, Christian pastor in a rather large church in Southern California, right? And then all of a sudden, you know, Lonnie Frisbee shows up and, and brings, starts bringing hippies and, you know, people that, you know, those uh, mm, dignified people might not want to uh, deal with. And, uh, and Chuck Smith has the humility to recognize the hand of God and what's going on there. And not everything goes well. And yet, yeah. I, I, yeah, I've got to see the movie because the story is fascinating. It, where did you see it? It's on, I think we rented it on Amazon. Okay. Yeah, um, yeah, so again, it, 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 there is a whole episode on the Christian History Almanac about Lonnie Frisbee and how he loses himself and then he comes back to faith 
Um, but his story is complicated. He's a mess. And yet God used him in these incredible ways um, to, to bring the love of Jesus to some people who were marginalized and ignored. And, you know, there's a, that is a really neat story. I had a it does, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you know, I, I think that when, um, when, when we start to think that the, the, the church and the gospel are for us and people like us, then that becomes problematic. You know, the gospel's for everyone. Um, one of the people that I look up to and, and kind of try to emulate sometimes in my preaching, sometimes, you know, in, in um, my leadership style and stuff, is a guy by the name of Greg Finke. And uh, one of my favorite lines from him, uh, it, it was from one of his Easter sermons, where he says, Jesus got out of the grave. He wants to get out of your church. <laughs> Just this idea that, you know, yes, Jesus time right here. Go out into the world, share the gospel, get it out there. You know, you know, and then Alani Frisbee comes along, and that's exactly what starts to happen. And it starts breaking some molds, and, you know, God does some pretty amazing things. You know, and would I endorse everything about Lonnie Frisbee? Well, no, I would not. In no way. Uh, you know, but God used him. No doubt about it. Anything else? Thanks for bringing that up. That's, yeah. uh, there was another movie which is like really cool. That was about George Foreman. George Foreman? Yeah. Who named all of his kids George. Right. Yes. <laughs> I just saw it yesterday. Yeah. It was like super cool. How, like when he was like, he was uh, like two times world heavyweight champion. But when um, he was like not believing in God and had this championship, uh, he's not basically doing well. Basically, he's getting into like negative publicity, and then he realized that no, he needs to come towards God. And all these championships that he wins, it's basically just to to get away from his anger and his frustration. And then he decided to become faster, and also starts boxing again. And he did it in a very good way with the cool publicity and stuff. It's like, okay, saying that, yeah, you are able to do whatever you want to do, what you are capable to do, what you are good at it, or what is your enthusiasm, but do it in God's way. You'll get God's glory at the same time, and you'll get your satisfaction at the same time, too. Yeah. <laughs> Another person that God used in a, in a great and wonderful way. Yeah. So, um, in, in 19... Uh, Paul quotes uh, Deuteronomy 32. He gets into Isaiah 65, verse 1, trying to answer this question, did Israel not understand? And then he wraps this whole section up by, by saying, but to Israel, he says, and we've already read this, Isaiah 62, um, 65, verse 2, uh, all day long I've held out to my people to a disobedient and defiant people. And again, don't take this as, you know, you know those people. This is, this is a warning for us as well. You know, and uh, you know, the rain shower passes. You know, and he continues to hold his hands out, but it, he 
he's not going to stop doing what he does, bringing forgiveness and salvation to people. And if in the process he makes other people jealous and they want God's blessings and they come back to him, so much the better. And you might not realize it, but we just finished a whole chapter. <laughs> not today, we fi- I mean we finished it today. So into chapter 11. Um, in chapter 11, verses 1 through 4, I ask then, has God rejected his people? This is a big question, right? This is something that's come up over and over again across history. You know, did God reject the Jews? I ask then, has God rejected his people? Absolutely not. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, from the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or don't you know what the scripture says in the the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left, and they are trying to take my life. But what was God's answer to him? I have left 7,000 for myself who have not bowed down to Baal. So, to understand this, we need another excursus into the Old Testament about the prophet Elijah. And almost everything that you need to know about the prophet Elijah can be found in 1 Kings chapters 17 and 19. So, 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles. And we're in 1 Kings, starting with chapter 17. Now, obviously, we're not going to read all of this. Um, I encourage you to read it. Uh, but let me walk you through the story here. Um, Elijah, Elijah is working with the northern tribes. There's a point where all 12 tribes of Israel form one nation. Under King Saul, under King David under King Solomon. Solomon's son was approached with what ends up kind of being a request for tax relief. And his response was, you think it was bad under my dad? You just wait. And the kingdom split. Two tribes stayed with him in the south. The ten tribes in the north formed, um, well, they kept the name Israel. Two tribes to the south started to be called Judah. Okay? This does get a little bit confusing as you're reading through the scriptures sometimes. So these ten tribes to the north, Israel, um, one of the things that they did right away is they instituted a different religion. Because part of the religion of Judah, or the, of the full Israel, the people of God, was that they were to come to Jerusalem every year which is part of the southern kingdom. And if you're in the north, you don't want your people, you know, because then they start thinking, why are we separated? We're the same people. And so they set up an altar in Samaria. They put idols there. They drew from the pagan religion of the people around them, and they blended it. This is called syncretism. Uh, They blended it with elements of uh, Judaism. And they said, 
You just worship here. You don't have to go back down. To, you don't have to go to Jerusalem. It's a long ways anyhow. Um, and, uh, and so as they start worshiping these gods, you know who gets upset about stuff like that, right? The Lord does. And, um, and there are all these things that, you know, he, he sends prophets and there's uh, combat and there's all of these things. And one of the prophets that he sends is this guy named Elijah. And Elijah, you know, says that he's a Tishpite from uh, uh, the Gilead settlers. And really, beyond that, we don't know too much about him. He's, he's really kind of this mysterious individual, but very powerful individual. God uses him in an incredible way. And the first thing that we have recorded that he's sent to do is to go to the king and say, hey, there's going to be a famine because of your idolatry. Have a nice day. And, uh, you know, so he, he basically makes this proclamation. It's not going to rain until I say it's going to rain. So there's a drought. There's a famine. And the first thing he does is he goes and he hides out um, at a, a wadi. A wadi is a, uh, it's a stream, but it tends to dry up during the dry seasons. It has to be refilled by rain. You know, then, then you have a trickle that comes through it. Well, while he's there, God feeds him, he provides for him, and uh, eventually the, the wadi dries up, and he tells him to go to Zarephath, um, which is not one of the Israelite territories. He says, go to a widow there, and I'm going to provide for you for, for a, a while with her. This is where we get the famous account of the, uh, he meets the widow, and um, she is gathering sticks because she has enough oil and enough flour to make one more cake of bread for her and her son. They're going to eat, and then they're going to die. And Elijah says, my paraphrase, that's fantastic, but first make something for me. Because God has promised that oil will not run out, the flour will not run out. And she believes and she makes for Elijah, and then there's enough to make for her son and for her, and the flour did not run out, the oil did not run dry the whole time uh, that he was with her. And yet, there was a point where her son died while he was with her. And she confronts him about this, and Elijah takes the son and prays for him, and God raises him from the dead. These, the things that God did through Elijah, I mean, these are, these are the stories of Sunday school that just, you know, we're like, um, and then God sends him back to confront Ahab. And re, please do read this because there's an incredible scene where um, there's a guy who's faithful, who serves Ahab. He's been trying to kind of play both sides. And he finds Elijah and whoever finds Elijah is supposed to report to Ahab because Ahab wants to kill him. And, uh, and, and Elijah finds him, he says, what did I ever do to you? you know, I'm going to go back and tell Ahab that you're here and you want to see him, and then you're going to disappear again, and he's going to kill me. And Elijah's like, no, I'm actually going to talk to Ahab today. Go get your master. And, uh, and he does, and this confrontation with Ahab, it's one of these things where he, it becomes like this national thing. So 
How about this, Ahab? If we're going to kind of be torn between gods here, let's have a competition and see which god is really the god who can do something. Not to mention that, you know, my god has kept it from raining for three years at this point. And Elijah, or Ahab says, all right, I'll take you on. And he gets all of these prophets of Baal and Asherah, these, these false gods that they're worshiping. And he says, basically, let's do this. We'll have a sacrifice. We'll set up two sacrifices. And whichever God can actually bring down fire from heaven to consume the sacrifice, that's God, and we should all worship him. Okay, good deal. And uh, Elijah, he's like, you know, hey, there's a bunch of you. There's one of me. You go first, you know. So they set up their altar. They slaughter the, the bull. Um, and they start dancing. And they're calling out to Baal to bring down fire. Baal, by the way, is the god of the storm. So lightning, right? You hear Baal, think Thor. Okay. Um, that, that whole type of, uh, of a genre of God. And uh, meanwhile, Elijah goes about making his altar and, um, um, you know, and he's taunting them. Uh, this doesn't come across in the English, but literally in the Hebrew, there's a point where he, he's kind of like, you know, maybe you need to cry louder. He might be in the bathroom. You know, um, and... Uh, uh, and they're, they're cutting themselves and everything. And finally, Elijah gets to this point. He's like, okay. And he builds this altar. He slaughters the, uh, the, the cow, puts it on there. And he says, this is too easy. I need water. And we're talking like almost, I think it's almost like 300 gallons of water during a drought. Pour it on the sacrifice. Dig a trench around it. You know, so they dig a trench around the altar. They got the sacrifice on it. Everything, the wood, the, the animal, the, there's water. It, everything is soaking wet. And he says a prayer. And God consumes it all. You know, the, the, the sacrifice, the wood, the water, the stones are all scorched. And, and they're like, hey, remember our deal? And the people did. And they took the uh, uh, prophets of Baal and they killed them because they were serving a false god. Well, Ahab, Ahaz has some uh, commitments to those, that false god. And part of it's related to his wife, a woman named Jezebel. That really is her name. Um, and that's why we use that derogatorily today. And when Jezebel hears about it, her response is, Elijah, you're a dead man. And Elijah's like, oh my gosh, I'm a dead man. And he's terrified. Even though God has done this incredible thing through him, and he runs away to Horeb. And this is that part in the scriptures where he goes and he hides in the mountain, and God speaks to him. And it says that he came to him with a still soft voice maybe you've heard that literally in hebrew it's like a soft whisper and he receives these instructions but he starts out with you know th this whole complaint 
They've killed your prophets. They've torn down your altars. I'm the only one left. They're trying to kill me. And God's first words back to him are not, it's okay, Elijah. I understand. It's go back. And then he has instructions in terms of what to do. And he ends with, I have left 7,000 for myself who have not bowed down to Baal. You're not alone. I have preserved my people. And, and that's the context of what we're talking about there, uh, you know, in terms of what, uh, what Paul is saying to them. So he, he continues in the same way. Uh, there is also at the present time a remnant chosen by grace. Now, if by grace, then it's not by works unless grace ceases to be grace. And that's where we'll pick up next week. So as we wrap up, I do want you to take some time to think about you know, what, what was in this that you want to make sure that you remember. Was there anything particularly comforting or challenging um, that you want to hold on to from these verses that we've looked at today? And then, um, and then um, how will the, these lessons that you've learned um, impact your faith life. So take some time to think about that. I've got to get back to church. I didn't give you enough time to talk about it, sorry. But uh, do take that time amongst yourselves.